Well, good morning. Welcome here to the church this morning. This is uh, Memorial Day weekend. And uh, when I was first beginning to pastor a church, I was 18 years old, 19, I guess, by the time Memorial Day rolled around. But I was 18 when this little church up in North Missouri called me to be their pastor. I was a freshman in college. And, and so I was driving up, and so I drove up on Memorial Day Sunday, the Sunday before Memorial Day, and having grown up in church and knowing what three-day weekends mean, <laughs> I was expecting a low crowd on Memorial Day. And I'll never forget, it was a long time ago, 40 years ago, but I'll never forget, I, I turned the corner on the little dirt road, and I couldn't find a place to park. There were cars on the road, on the highway. I had no idea what had happened, and uh, this church had a cemetery next to it. And so uh, Memorial Day was the one Sunday everybody came from Kansas City or St. Joe or Des Moines or wherever they lived, um, and they had... Uh, they would decorate the graves on that Sunday and have a dinner, and they didn't bother to tell me. I was just an 18-year-old pastor, so uh, it was fun. So anyway, but after, year, after that, year after year, I, I realized that was a big day in the life of that church. Memorial Day, obviously, is a day we, as growing up as a, as a kid, we went to the cemeteries, all of them, um, all my grandparents and aunts and uncles, and it was a chance, really... I mean, I, I didn't really know my grandfather. He passed away when I was a young child. I didn't know my grandmother very well um, and many other aunts and uncles. And so it was a chance for my parents, as we were at the cemetery, putting flowers on the graves, to talk to us a little bit about our, our family and our history and, and also talk to us about the resurrection and about life and heaven, all those kinds of things. It was a, a, a good time in my life in understanding more about my family and understanding more about our faith and death and resurrection. I mean, as a young child, six, seven, eight years old. Um, those were very formative times. And obviously, we're we very grateful for those who've served in the military and those who've paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we could be free even today. And it just happens that it was four years ago this morning that my own father passed away. And, you know, Facebook is great about reminding you of those kinds of things. I had actually forgotten this was the actual day that he he passed away. So with all of that, all my memories of going to the cemetery and my loss of my own father four years ago today, we're going to look this morning at a passage of Scripture that's very familiar to you, but it's John chapter 11 and verse 28. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and, <laughs> and volunteer this information, but do you ever sometimes really wonder if we really do go to heaven? If there really is life after death? Do you ever wonder that? Don't answer out loud, but if you're human, you do. There are times you do. Is this really real? I mean, there's the cemetery, and that's real. And, and I, I just want you to know that the adversary is the one who who is the author of death, and, and he wants us to be terrified of it. He wants us to see it as this great, terrible enemy. And throughout all the Scripture, I mean, from the beginning to the map in the back, it is all about God's plan for us to live eternally. Jesus is not secretive about resurrection. The New Testament doesn't hide the fact that we actually do live again. It's not something you've got to dig and look for. It just jumps out all over the place. 
And sometimes we just have to preach to ourselves and remind ourselves this is actually true. Jesus came out of the grave. We celebrated that at Easter. Jesus raised people from the dead, such as Lazarus. Jesus promises us that we will be with him for all eternity. We have all those assurances. And so we have to preach to ourselves and speak to ourselves. And, and again, when I was a child and we'd go to the cemeteries and my parents would tell me, you know, their, their bodies are there, but they're with Jesus right now. And one day we're all going to be together. And my parents would even tell me that, you know, that, uh, that, that in the cemetery, they, the, they bury us so that we face the eastern sky, so that when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. And when that eastern sky opens, you'll just come right out of the grave. You don't have to turn around and look at him. He'll just be right there. And that's true. I mean, all those things. And so it's an exciting. And, so when, and in this little country church that I, I pastored, the cemetery is, if you go to my Facebook, uh, it, it's, my, it's my, um, my profile page. That's what it is, the picture there. And so it, you'll see that I'm standing in the front of the cemetery and the church is behind me. So it's not off to the side. The cemetery is really right in front of the church, literally. And so on hot summer days, we didn't have air conditioning. Those two doors were open, the front door of the church. And so as I was preaching from the pulpit for those several years, I'd look down that center aisle, I'd look out those two doors, and I saw a cemetery out there. And I really did think, wouldn't it just be awesome if while we're having church and while I'm preaching, the Lord comes again and those dead in Christ would come out of that cemetery first? Because it's actually going to happen. The adversary wants you to doubt it. He wants you to, but it's actually going to happen because Jesus did it and he talks about it and the whole scripture talks about it. Again, it's not hidden. It's not secretive. It's, it's what it's all based upon. John 14, Jesus told those disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father. And Jesus pulls back the curtain of heaven and he tells you and me, What's going to be there? In my Father's house, there are many rooms. And Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for each one of you who are my children. And I will come to you and receive you, that where I am, you will be. We can comfort one another with these words. But let's look at how Jesus faced death in John eleven twenty eight. Now, you know the story. Perhaps you don't. I shouldn't assume that. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, two sisters and a brother, dear friends of Jesus, lived in a little town called Bethany, which is right outside the gates of Jerusalem. And word comes to Jesus one day that Lazarus is very ill. And so the disciples were assuming that Jesus would immediately go to Lazarus and heal him. But Jesus does not. He just waits. He tarries day after day. He doesn't go to Lazarus. There's another sermon for another day there. But when Jesus finally goes, Lazarus has already died. And so the sisters are dealing with the fact that Jesus would raise somewhat strangers from the dead, but their own brother, whom Jesus loved, Jesus didn't come in time to heal him. And so they have to bury their brother. And there are mourners there at the home. And Jesus finally arrives. He has that encounter with Martha and and with Mary. But here, I want to pick up the story. John 11, 
28. When she had said this, she, this is Martha. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher, Jesus, is here. He's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Remember, Martha ran outside of the village of Bethany to meet Jesus on the road. And that's where Martha said, Lord, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. And then she said, but yet I know he'll live again in the resurrection. All right? Even she had the hope of that. In verse 31, when the Jews were with her in the house, consoling her, they saw Mary rise quickly and go out, and they followed her, thinking she was going to the tomb to weep some more. There was a, there's a sense there in, in those days, and really, even in the days of my grandparents, where the family would gather for days in the home and mourn together. That's another story for another day. We just, we just want to make death. We just put it aside and, you know. They mourned for days in a home. And even my grandparents uh, would mourn for days and family would be there. So the, the house was filled with mourners and all of a sudden they just noticed that Mary gets up and runs out of the house and assuming she's running maybe to go to the tomb of her brother and weep and they don't want her to be alone. So they, they follow her. So you get this picture, this little house, not a big house, this little house full of people, a very sad, very mournful experience made even somewhat more confusing by the fact that they knew Jesus could heal anybody, but he chose not to heal their brother. But Jesus wants to see Mary, so she leaves quickly, and all these mourners follow her. Verse 32, And when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him, and she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Folks, I, I just, I think it's, Perfectly appropriate when, when death comes to someone we love and someone we care about. And it's perfectly appropriate for, for us to, to feel grief about that and even confusion about that and even the timing about that. And here Mary, she loves the Lord, but she is very honest and very open with her grief. And he doesn't scold her for saying that. Verse 33, And when Jesus saw her weeping... And the Jews, the other mourners who were coming with her, also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He sees this, 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 this young girl that he cares so much for, her and her sister Martha and brother Lazarus. And he sees her brokenhearted almost inconsolable. And not just her, but her friends and her extended family and others around, and they're all weeping. And this greatly grieves Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, he's the resurrection and the life. <laughs> I mean, he, he knows there's a place in heaven for not only Lazarus, but for Mary and Martha. They're going to be there for all eternity. Wouldn't you think Jesus would just go, you know, it's not that bad. Just chill. I'm here. And sometimes I'm afraid that's what we do when, when people experience death of a loved one and we want to cheer them up. We say, you know, they're in heaven. They're in a better place. And just, That's not what Jesus says here. There's a mourning. There's a grieving. Death is crushing. 
Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus, at this point, when he sees, when he sees Mary grieving and he sees all the family and all the extended family grieving, the gospel writer John says, he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. He wasn't just moved and troubled, seriously. The gospel writer John wants us to know this was significant. He was deeply moved and he was greatly troubled. And then he said, where have you laid him? Just like some of you may go to cemeteries today or tomorrow. Where have you laid him? And so they took him to the tomb where they had placed the body of Lazarus. And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35, which is, as you know, the shortest verse in all the Bible, just two words, Jesus wept. And he didn't just shed a tear. He didn't just kind of get a little choked up. He's weeping bitterly. The next verse says, the Jew said, see how much he loved him. I want you to get this picture of Christ standing in front of this tomb of Lazarus and his, his shoulders heaving and he's crying and he's weeping bitterly as some of you have at the loss of a loved one. Isn't that one of the strangest pictures in all the Bible? He knows in a few moments he'll raise him from the dead. What is, is it just crocodile tears? Is he just pretending? Absolutely not. There's not anything disingenuous in Jesus at all. He's not even capable of that. This is real. For many years, I, I, would, I preached basically the truth that Jesus is weeping over sin. He's weeping over death. He's weeping over all of this all at once. And I came across recently four sort of points that John Piper brought out in this text. And I, I, just, I just want to share them with you because they're precious. You'll never look at this text again the same way. You'll never just skip over it and get to the resurrection of Lazarus, although that is obviously important. But so is this. This picture of Jesus, his humanity, and his identify, identification with suffering and First of all, I just want you to see, first and foremost, and I've already talked about it for several minutes, just, just the, the compassion that Jesus has for suffering. When Mary is suffering, Jesus suffers with her. We do not serve a Savior who is, who is away from us in our suffering. When you are suffering, when you get the bad news from the doctor, when you lose a loved one, when you lose a job, when life becomes crushing, Jesus comes to you and he, he, he's, 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 he identifies with you in your suffering. He doesn't ignore your suffering. He doesn't blow it off. He weeps with her. Man, we, we serve a God. Think about this. I mean, he is the God of the universe. He spoke everything in this universe into being in one instant. He knows, as, you, as the scripture says, and as I say all the time, he, has, he knows every star by name and he holds them in place by his mighty power. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He has no beginning 
and he has no end. He is holy, holy, holy. He is, he is the God of the universe. But he chose to put on human flesh and identify with us in our human situation, even in suffering. So when you're suffering, when you've lost a loved one, when you're suffering with physical disease, when you're looking at death, when you're suffering from people who've turned their back on you, any number of things, you have a God who can understand and meet you at the point of your suffering. We see that Jesus has compassion on those who suffer. And so should we. The scripture says we mourn with those who mourn and we weep with those who weep. We don't scold them for mourning and scold them for weeping. Not long after we replanted Warnell Road, we started a Haitian congregation in the church right after, right a few months before the major earthquake in Haiti. And so many of the family members who were in our Haitian congregation lost loved ones in the earthquake. But the Haitian congregation grew, and it grew with a lot of young people and teenagers. Now, most of these Haitian teenagers had never been to Haiti. They were born here, but their parents were from Haiti. Some of you might remember this. It's probably 10 years ago now. Gael and Samuel were two young Haitians. Actually, Samuel had, was born here and was a good athlete in his high school and wore a shirt and tie to church every Sunday and played the keyboard while his dad led music. He also would profess his faith in Jesus and was quite active in fellowship of Christian athletes. Gael, on the other hand, was actually a victim of the earthquake. And he and his mother lost everything, and they came here as refugees from the earthquake. And he was not a follower of Jesus, but they came to the church because that Haitian congregation reached out to some refugees. That summer, they wanted to go to Fellowship of Christian Athletes Camp in Iowa. So a large group of Haitian teenagers from our Haitian congregation went to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes Camp in Iowa. Two or three o'clock on a Thursday morning, I get a phone call from one of our Haitian leaders. He told me that those two boys had drowned. They didn't know how to swim. Most children in Haiti don't know how to swim. There's no pools to practice in. And their parents had signed a thing saying that they weren't allowed to swim. But they went to a pool 
there, and they weren't supposed to swim, but they were boys, and they didn't want to be embarrassed, and so they were going to swim. And apparently, they went down the slide together, thinking that they could help each other, and it was just the opposite. And there were so many people in the pool, no one saw them go under. And it wasn't until they got back on the bus and did a head count, and those two were missing. So they figured they were just walking around someplace, and finally when they turned the lights on in the pool, they found them. So the Haitian congregation referred to me as their pastor. They had laymen who helped pastor the church, but I was their pastor. So here I am, two teenage boys. Now, the young man that was not a Christian, that was on a Thursday night. On Tuesday night at FCA camp, he, he followed Jesus as his Savior, and he pronounced to the whole group that he was now a believer in Christ. So I have these two young boys and their families, and the Haitian congregation pastors wanted me to do the funeral, and it was a double funeral. And again, maybe you remember it. It was on the news. All the news people were there. The Kansas City Star, it was a front-page story in the Kansas City Star. I wasn't really prepared to deal with the news media, especially like the Kansas City Star, you know. And so uh, I show up at church to start arranging for the funeral, and the Kansas City Star reporter is there. And, um, when he comes up to me, then there's a couple of TV guys who come up at the same time and they have their cameras on, and they just ask the obvious question, right? Why did God let this happen? These are two very gifted young men. One just became a Christian. The other was a really committed Christian. Athletes, good in school, at a Christian camp. It's an obvious question. And here's the only answer I could give them. The scripture is often very silent about the why. But the scripture speaks volumes about the what now. And the what now is we mourn with those who mourn, and we weep with those who weep, and we comfort those who need comfort. And we, we grieve, but we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. For our grief is informed by the hope of the gospel. And I told them there'll be a day when we will not grieve. But that day is not today. Even though we know these boys are with the Lord, we are grieving with their family. We are mourning with their family. And their grief is informed by hope, the hope that one day they will see them. And one day this pain will lessen. But that day is not today. And as I was saying all of that, I was thinking about Jesus and what a model he was for me as he stood there in front of Lazarus' tomb, weeping with Mary and grieving with them at the same time. Dear friends, friends we, we need to come around people who need, who need consoling and comforting. We don't need to ostracize them and go away from them. And if someone has, sometimes people, they go through a situation in their life, it could be a a breakup of a marriage, it could be the death of a child, it could be the death of a parent, it could be a terminal illness, and sometimes we just feel like we don't, we don't know what to say, we don't say anything. You, you can't fix it with your words, but you certainly 
can make a huge difference with just your presence in their life and just grieving with them. So I see in this first instance here that we see this beautiful picture that Jesus has compassion for their suffering. He doesn't negate it. He doesn't marginalize it. He doesn't kick it to the road. He suffers with them. He has compassion. And so should we have compassion on this world that is so hurting. We should be the most compassionate people in the culture. And likewise, we know that we do not suffer alone. That he is there with us, even especially in our darkest moment. He does not leave us or forsake us. But secondly, I believe that Jesus is crying and weeping there because he realizes the calamity of sin. The reason there is death is because of sin. The wages of sin is death. And when Adam and Eve chose to sin, they brought the curse of death on all of humanity. Now, Jesus came to remove that curse, and he has removed it for those of us who trust him and follow him. But it's still a curse. It's still there. And so when Jesus is standing there in front of the tomb of Lazarus and he's weeping, not only is he identifying with these mourners and these sisters in the loss of their brother, but he's also, I believe, with all of my heart, he's just crushed because he understands, check this out, that in, the, in all of the history of humanity, think of all of the tragic deaths, all of the sorrowful deaths, and, and all at once he's just very much aware that death is such an enemy, just the calamity of it. Such a tender-hearted and loving Savior as he is, and he sees that calamity of sin. And, and really, I like what Piper says here. He says that Jesus' tears give us a glimpse of how the Father feels and grieves over his children. Thirdly, I think Jesus is weeping because he's fully aware of the cost of redemption. As he stands in front of that tomb, he is God, but he is human. We don't fully understand that. We won't understand that until we get to heaven. But you can't say he's just God. He has no human feelings. You can't say he's just human and he's not divine. He's incarnate. He's both. He's in every way like we are, yet without sin. Every way like we are. And we do know that when he was arrested, and he was, right before he was arrested, when he was in the garden that night, what did he pray? Father, let this cup pass from me. And he sweat drops of blood. And as he stands there in front of this tomb, he realizes that because one like he loved so much died, he knows the only solution for that is what? His own death. the cost of his redemption and his own death. Because, listen, Jesus knows. Jesus knows. When I raised Lazarus out of that tomb, have you ever thought about this? Bethany is about two miles from the gates of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is packed with people right now because of the Passover, all right? All kinds of people that want to do Jesus in. All the religious leaders, all those folks, they're jealous of him. They're fearful of him. 
They want to do him in. He's standing here in front of the tomb of this young man that he loves so much, and he knows if I raise him from the dead, that's my death sentence. They're not going to ignore that. And he was right. You can feed some people. You can walk on the water. You can turn water to wine. But you start raising the guy from the dead outside the gates of Jerusalem, and you're a real threat. So as he stands there, all of this is coming to him. Yes, he does grieve with Mary and Martha and those mourners. Yes, he absolutely grieves for all of us who've experienced death with a loved one and the, the, the pain and just the, the, the awfulness of sin that brought the curse of death. But then I know he stands there and he's crying and weeping too because he realizes the cost of redemption and what it's going to take. And after all of that, what does he do? He says, Lazarus, come forth. And Jesus, listen, Jesus is willing to lay down his life so that Lazarus can live again. Jesus has laid down his life so that you and I can live again. Lazarus couldn't raise himself from the dead. Mary and Martha couldn't bring Lazarus back out of the tomb. The only thing that could bring Lazarus back from the dead was Jesus. The only thing that can give us eternal life is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because God placed all of his wrath for your sin and my sin upon his son, and he paid the penalty so that you and I might be sin set free. Think about all that was going on in the heart and the mind of Jesus as he stood there in front of the tomb of Lazarus. I don't know about you, when I think about losing loved ones, when I have to preach difficult funerals, and there aren't any easy ones, I'm so grateful that I have a God and a Savior who understands the suffering, who doesn't run from it, but runs toward it, who identifies with us in it, and who not only that, but He gives us absolute certain hope that it will all be defeated. He died that death would die. Now, I want to end with this. You've never heard these two scriptures together on the same sermon. But I haven't slept in 36 hours, so you're just getting what you're getting. And you think I'm kidding. I'm not. Way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 42. You know, let me bring you up real quick. There's no corn... There's no, there's no grain in Israel. They've got to go to Egypt for the grain, right? So Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to get grain. And little does he know, but Joseph, the son that he thought was eaten by the lions, <laughs> is now second in command in all of Egypt. And the brothers, they don't even know that's Joseph, but they go and they get the grain but Joseph, not yet revealing himself, he says, I want you to do something. And before you go back, I, I want you to, I need, you need to leave Simeon here as sort of a hostage that I know you're going to be back and you're not going to steal from me. Well, you know how Joseph put, took the, put the grain out and put this gold in. And so when they get back to Jacob, the brothers have to tell him, Simeon is basically a hostage and they'll 
we'll never see Simeon again if we don't agree to take your baby son, your last son, Benjamin. And listen to what Jacob says. Verse 35 of chapter 42 of Genesis. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. In other words, they stole from Pharaoh. Not a good thing to do, especially when one of your brothers is sort of a hostage there. And when the father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, son, said to them, you have bereaved me. You have bereaved me of my children. And listen to what he says. I got to tell you, I'm a preacher. I've been to seminary. I've been doing this for 40 years. My dad was a preacher. My great-grandfather was a preacher. But when I lose somebody I love to death, I have to go back to these texts. And you do too. This is what Joseph, this is what Jacob says. He cries out in verse 36. You bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you'll take Benjamin too. Look, from the standpoint of of Jacob, everything he said was true. Jacob had the proof that Joseph was dead, right? He had the coat of many colors that was shredded up and had blood all over it. He probably kept it. That was My son Joseph is dead. His son Simeon is dead because his knucklehead kids just stole from Pharaoh after leaving Simeon there as a hostage. So he probably, Simeon's already been killed. And if they want any grain back, if if the whole family's going to live, they got to give Benjamin. And so now I'm going to lose Benjamin. And so listen to me. In every way you could look at it, what Jacob said was true. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now Benjamin will be no more. And sometimes we can stand and you can look at those cemeteries and you can say, my mom's no more. My husband or my wife is no more. My child's no more. Because to our human eyes and our human experiences, they're not there. And Joseph, Jacob was simply explaining the reality as he saw it, as it was. But let me tell you what, what was happening. Yeah. He says, Joseph is no more. He couldn't have been any more wrong, right? Where was Joseph? He was number two in all Egypt. He was living high. He was dressing well. He had power. He had influence. And what about Simeon? Was he a hostage? Of course not. Simeon was in the loving, protective care of his dear brother, Joseph. And Joseph wasn't going to let anything happen to Simeon. And what about Benjamin? Joseph just couldn't wait to see him. And Joseph knew when Benjamin comes, the whole family will come, and we're all going to be together again. From Jacob's standpoint, Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Benjamin is no more. But Jacob's standpoint was not truth. The truth was they were all fine. My dad is fine. My mom is fine. The people you've lost that were in Christ, they're fine. They're not no more. (laughs) They are fine. They've never been better. All right? And Jesus proved that when he brought Lazarus out of the grave. And he gave us our victory when just a few days later he came forth out of that tomb. Rejoice in that death has been defeated. 
rejoice in that our grief is informed by the hope of the resurrection. But dear saints, understand this is still a sorrowful world, and we are to be people who mourn with those who mourn and have compassion on those that need compassion, as Jesus has had compassion upon us. If you're here today and you've never repented of your sin, you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never called on Him to save you and to remove your sin and to pay the price for your sin and to trust Him for eternal life, if you've never done that, then death is your enemy. But you can have victory over that today. And if those of us who know Christ, I just want to say one more time, we need to preach to ourselves on a regular basis. As the Apostle Paul said, Oh, death, where is your sting? And oh, grave, where is your victory? For the sting of death is sin. But thanks be to God who has given us the victory over both sin and the grave through his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. When you go visit those graves this weekend of the loved ones who are with the Lord, you're visiting resurrection ground. Because one day, ain't no grave going to hold this body down. Ain't no grave going to hold this body down. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word and how it's powerful and speaks to us. Lord, help us realize we have the certainty of life after death. What a glorious reward for us who deserve nothing. May we, may we relish that today, and may we battle daily Satan's attempts to cause us to doubt it and wonder if it's really true. Oh, it's true. Sometimes we say Joseph's no more, and Simeon's no more, and Benjamin's no more, but that's not true. They are fine. And Lord, give us compassion that you have for people so that we can share your compassion and your, your, your love and your ministry to folks who need it, who are hurting. May we not grow impatient with people. May we not grow cold and indifferent. May we not wall ourselves off to try to avoid hurt. But may we be like you as you model for us, stand there and just weep with these dear friends of his and identify with them in their grief. At the same time, knowing that it is so brief and temporary compared to all eternity. In Jesus' name.